My name is Patricia Rozvora and you're listening to Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader audience. For each episode, I'm inviting one artist or researcher and together we explore the relation, interest and the urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Here, I also wanted to thank everyone for listening and supporting this podcast. It's very rewarding to see that with every episode, the community is growing, which was, of course, the whole point of this platform. If you are a regular listener, you might want to check out my Patreon page, where you can support my work and help me develop this amazing but time-consuming project. You can do that on patreon.com slash kitchenconversations. I was a bit younger at the time and um, was, was, uh, had a set of gallery plans for how we would first install these works, the, the red and the orange at Tate Modern, and what we wanted to do with them. And um, Frances, in fact, said to me, you know, go and show her the plans and then, you know, she, she's in her 70s at this point, maybe she doesn't need to travel and we can, she can sign off what we want to do. And so I went to visit her and was quite terrified by her, <laughs> and, um, and uh, she, you know, she, she was very clear and very firm, and she kind of looked at me and sized me up and looked at the floor plans and said, I think I come to London. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back everyone. In this special episode, you can treat it as my Christmas gift to you. An episode created in collaboration with Contemporary Links and the Polish Cultural Institute London. On November 15th, I had a chance and great pleasure to attend the press view at Tate Modern in London of a retrospective show by Magdalena Abakanowicz. And for those who don't know, it was a Polish artist, but very much recognizable abroad as well. An artist known, among others, for her large woven sculptures called Abakans. The short part that you could hear at the very beginning of this episode was a snippet from the curator's tour that I recorded and attended as well. And the anecdote about Abakanovich was told by Anne Coxon, curator international art Tate Modern, whose voice will be still coming back during this podcast. After the press view, I had an opportunity to meet the second external curator of the show, Mary Jane Jacob, who shared with me professional and personal stories connected with Abakanovich and her extraordinary work that was inspired by living through the Second World War, state socialism in Poland, the systemic transformation and much more. My today's guest, Mary Jane Jacob, is a North American curator, writer and educator from Chicago, Illinois. She's a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's also the artistic director of the Abakanovich Arts and Culture Charitable Foundation that we will speak about at the end of this episode. Already since 70s, Mary Jane has been working towards becoming a pioneer in area of public, site-specific and socially engaged art. Throughout her practice, uh, she was supporting especially the work of women and people who were overlooked or totally neglected within the history of arts. 
She's the author and editor of many key papers and books and has worked with a big amount of outstanding, very well-known artists. She was the one to discover the genius in Abakanovich's work, bringing it home to the US and creating the first and largest retrospective of her work. Well, this month is actually the 40th anniversary of the exhibition which I made of Magdalena Bakanovich in North America. It was organized by the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago and first was on view there and traveled around the U.S. and Canada uh, for two years, so was quite some time. Uh, but in fact, I met her three years earlier because... It takes some time to do an exhibition. It took twice as long to do this much smaller exhibition, and uh, that is because we have all lived through the COVID pandemic and various corollary disruptions of our work. But um, in the case of the first show of the artist in the U.S., a first retrospective major show, it was a project that I was introduced to quite accidentally, as these things sometimes happen in life. Um, as the composer John Cage said, we have to make them happy accidents that lead us to a place we were not going or did not know of. And in this case, I was an intern and young curatorial assistant at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And there was an interest among a woman in the city of Detroit who was very inspired by this fiber movement and had seen some artists work and wanted to buy something for the museum in the hopes that they would begin to collect this kind of art in the late 70s. She had approached the contemporary art curator who was not interested she was then sent to the European art curator, who was not interested, who sent her to the decorative arts curator, who was not interested. Maybe not a surprise, all three of those curators were men. And when the modern and contemporary curator left, and I was in charge of the department, in spite of just having been there for barely two years, um, but nonetheless, I was the person left in the department. She came to me and she said, here are some books. This is my interest. I do not even want to talk to you about it. I am so frustrated. I will leave these books here. If you want to talk, then we will. I looked through these big, heavy books, mainly picture books, and there was some interesting stuff, but then some other stuff I wasn't interested in. But it was clearly from each one of these books uh, the same impression, which was this Abakanovich person is in a totally other category. Like, what is this? This astounding photo, some of which you've seen in the exhibition today. And so I went back to this individual and said um, that perhaps we could proceed with something of Avakanovich. Uh, her name, Madeline Rosen, this donor, uh, was herself a Polish-American whose family was in large part killed during World War II. So there were many deep reasons for her interest. Um, although my selection of Avakanovich as a starting point 
then touched on not only her visual aesthetic interests, but also this personal biography. So in fact, I asked as this young curatorial assistant, could I look at this artist's work in her gallery in Switzerland when I travel to Rome to pick up the museum's Matisse painting and bring it back? So the director said yes, and I contacted her gallery, Alice Pauli, in Lausanne, and they said, well, in fact, we have no Abakanovich because the exhibition that we had ended and everything went back to Poland. So I said, okay, can I go to Warsaw on the way to Rome? To visit Poland and Warsaw at that time was not only special for Mary Jane because she could meet Abakanovich for the first time and see what was going on behind the Iron Curtain, but uh, this particular year, uh, 1979 and month, February, were considered to be the biggest winter of the century later described in my history books. That is the day I arrived. I arrived just as the snow was falling and was staying in the Forum Hotel because there were only uh, three hotels that Westerners could stay in. But one hour before I arrived at my hotel, the round bank across the street was blown up. So it was a very dramatic entry. Quite an entry into, into the socialist Poland at that time. socialist Poland. But I'm so pleased that I, of course, not only that I met the artist, but that I went at this time period because what became the creation of this exhibition over the next three years moved through uh, the whole passage of communist Poland to martial law to solidarity. But the art and the person were strong. And I can say, I mean, even though my career was young at that point, even now, I never met a person of such gravitas, such presence, such urgency and necessity about life and about art. And so she was stunning to meet. And we, we met one day, and at the end of that day, as she was driving me back to the forum <laughs> where the bank had been blown up, um, I said to her before I exited the car, I would like to do a retrospective of your work. Now, Patricia, I had no authority I was, remember, just a courier, junior curator. But the work was so important, it had to happen. And I went back with this this mission, and in fact, the director of the Detroit Institute of Arts approved it. I ended up moving, however, in the process to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. And so the show never happened in Detroit. It happened in many other places. I just wanted to come back to the very first moment you saw her work in this books of uh, mm, other yes. textile artists or fiber artists. And before even meeting her in person, you already knew this is something different. The work is different and the person, as you later found out, is just different level, as we would say yes, today. And, and Why was that? How, how did, could you already see it from photographs of the works, not even seeing them in the space, that it's something uh, really special and will stay with us? A work which is not in the exhibition, but will never be in any exhibition, is a permanent installation 
in the province house, that is the city hall, of Herzogenbosch outside of Amsterdam. It was begun in 1970 and then finished in 71. This was the one occasion when Avakinovich worked with a team of workers, not just a single assistant as most of the time or once in a while a second person. Um, this was a team of Polish and Dutch artists who she brought in because this work is almost 80 meters long and uh, six meters high. It's enormous, series of itself a forest as we try to evoke here with discrete Abakan works. And, and when one looks at the documentary photos, as I did, which were in this book, you see the artist in front of her work. She is a teeny tiny figure, a woman of great presence. But in this photo, she is so small because the work is so enormous. And, but then you also see this work has growth on it in, the, in what is represented in the weaving, its dimensionality, its layers, and, and it alone is extraordinary. And it's not just my impression. I see this from some people who are looking at our timeline, which tells the full story of the artist in the exhibition. And they say, but what is this photo? And after the artist died in 2017, in, in early 2018, I organized a uh, memorial service at the Museum of Modern Art in New York for her. And Frances Morris, who is the director here, was one of those participants. And looking through the archives in the library of MoMA in New York for some things which we would put on display during the memorial, I found a letter from the authors of one of these books, Jacqueline R. Larson and the MoMA curator, Mildred Constantine. And they are concluding the production of this, as you would see in the actual book, this quite large-scale book called Beyond Craft. I mean, it's, it is the essence of coffee table book. You can't hardly pick it up. <laughs> and... Um, and they say, they're asking her for things to send, and then they get the photos of the Herzogenbosch theater curtain. It, it, it is located in the theater of this province house. And they say, but what is this? We are going to hold production to include photos and information on this work because we have seen nothing like this. What is this amazing thing? And indeed, when I myself was walking through the exhibition at Tate Modern, actually the first time seeing the work of Abakanovich life, it evoked in me a lot of different feelings, connotations, this enormous fiber sculptures levitating above the ground reminded me of some animal skins, bodies, garments from a different planet. Since the first time the work uh, was shown in public, it fascinated both people from the art industry and basically anyone who came to visit and see her works. The Polish weavers were quite shocking, um, Abakanovich being the most prominent of them when they showed at the Tapestry Biennial in Lausanne, as Mary Jane said, from 1962 onwards. Um, in that, unlike the French tradition of tapestry weaving, they were not working from a big cartoon which was sent out, you know, from an artist's hand, was then sent out to a studio 
for a, a group of um, technicians to produce the tapestry and to copy the cartoon, to follow the cartoon. They would often weave with their own hands, Abakanovich weaving with their own hands, and they would refer to it as, as loom thinking. So this is a kind of improvisation at the loom. You know, she doesn't necessarily work with a rigid plan of where this is going to go or what it's going to look like. It kind of evolves on the loom. I think that we have to also accept in the artist's own words that art has its own mystery, but not every artist can make mystery. Indeed. And she can. And that can be very much felt uh, in the show here uh, upstairs. Uh, this particular show that is now uh, going to open to the public uh, in Tate Modern uh, concentrates on the fibre arts uh, and the abacans. Uh, later on, uh, Abakanovich also made uh, more figurative, um, human-like uh, crowds. Mm -hmm. uh, but this exhibition here shows more the transformation of the fibre art from the wall to the 3D and space. Uh, yeah, I would be curious if you can tell a little bit about that, about the revolutionary in fiber art that Magdalena Abakanovic achieved with her abacans. I'd, I'd first like to address the split between figurative and what seems to be formal or abstract. Is that all of Abakanovic's work is figurative and all of it is abstract. And this is part of the, part of an answer to what's different about it. So, you know, we talk about her invented anatomy and we can demonstrate that perhaps more in the last room of the exhibition. But, but already in early work, we see her creating organic forms. We see her creating images of life. Some human, some others. We see within a totemic kind of object an eye or a face. Is that figurative like Rodin or is that figurative like cultural production since the beginning of time, right? And that is part of what leads to this power because the work is always hers and by her hand and of her time and also not of her time and not of just her own artistic imagination, but of something that she embodies in a bigger way. So, uh, so that, is, that is part of it. And when we look at, for instance, her iconic backs, which also are in the collection of Tate, we see a number of shell-like forms. They, they don't have legs, they don't have a head, right? But we know their backs, but we can also imagine there's something else in nature. And, and that is part of the message. So while it's very clear in her statements and her later work that she was concerned that we were destroying the planet and wanted to affect that change, it also happens decades earlier in the work where she is showing us that we are part of nature and we are part of time. And it is the hubris of humanity to think that it has power and control and it determines 
time and space because when we take that attitude, we only destroy it. And she would say, we've done a very good job of destroying that. Indeed, and I think that's why this work is so timeless, I feel, and every time it can resonate with every historic mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. But can you uh, speak a little bit about her revolutionary way she transformed uh, the fiber art, but also uh, the idea of sculpture? Because I think she was one of... Uh, the the first ones to use fiber in sculpture and create sculpture as something more soft, organic. When I think of sculpture as something more rigid, something very present in the space, but very heavy on the ground. And she really worked with some very different feeling of what a sculpture is and can be. There was a period, which we focus on here, of the late 60s and the early 70s, where she found this possibility that working in a soft and organic way could create a more malleable object for which we could identify and also move closer to. She wrote a very amazing poetic piece called Soft. The piece that Mary Jane is referring to comes from a book of writings and conversations by Abakanovich, because as I found out, writing was one of her tools of expression as well as artistic creation. I was actually gifted this very book by Tate Modern and would like to read to you a little part from this piece called Soft that Abakanovich wrote in 1979. Interior. The shapes that I built are soft. They conceal within themselves the reasons for the softness. They conceal everything that I leave to the imagination. Neither through the eye nor the fingertips nor palm that informs the brain can this be explained. The inside has the same importance as the outer shell. Each time shaped as consequence of the interior or exterior as a consequence of the inside. Only together do they form a whole. The invisible interior, which can only be guessed at, is as important as when it opens for everyone, allowing physical penetration. Meditation. To make something more durable than myself would add to the imperishable rubbish heaps of human ambitions crowding the environment. If my thoughts and my imaginings just as I will turn to earth, so will the forms that I create. And this is good. There is so little room. She wrote about her experiences of being a child, living and growing up in the forests of Poland and being um, observing nature, being free to roam and to, um, to, to play in the forest. She talks about this idea of being, feeling secure when she enters the hollow trunk of a tree. Um, which is a fantastic image which really stayed in my mind. And um, in her house, like above her bed, so this is, this is the house that she had in later life um, that, that is kept now as the artist's estate and studio. But you see over the bed she would hang these big um, animal hides. And I saw that and had a moment of thinking, oh of course, you know, this, this is what the Abakans are all about. They're like these 
these beasts, they're like the skins of animals, and she talks about them being like skins, like a protective covering, um, like a shelter, all of these ideas of the things that are driving her and propelling her to, um, to create this or recreate this environment that she experienced as a child. So, yes, I mean, her, her revolution was to make soft objects on an enormous scale and to move art from that notion that what is soft is domestic or decorative into something that can have this power. But again, I think as she's doing that, she's channeling ways in which soft materials and making have been used in a history of humanity and not where it has arrived in a very narrow modernist notion and male-centered kind of direction of the hierarchy of medium, such as bronze is more important or marble is more important than cloth. You know, really it's more assigned to, to the crafts. Uh, yes, and then becomes man. identified as the craft. On the other it's hand, and this is not to be uh, ironic or contradictory, but to be more holistic, she then moves on to bronze and aluminum and these materials. Now, she uses them in a way that, again, as with her challenge of the history of tapestry, she challenges the history of bronze. She doesn't use it as a medium of replication. So if she does 40 bronze figures, she actually makes a mold and makes that form individually 40 times. We would, in the history of art, have found that there would be one mold, and that would be the beauty of bronze, is that you could replicate it 40 times. You know, that exploration of other medium that interests her becomes necessary because otherwise, if she continued to use sisal all her life, she had so much more to say, and it was a long career of over 50 years, so... She has done it, and now we're lucky to see it here at Tate Modern. But to stay stuck in that one direction would not be to live her life as an artist. The fact that I'm Polish and I speak Polish allowed me also to uh, watch uh, quite some uh, interviews with her mm. where she speaks about how people should see and experience her art. And she uh, really um, doesn't describe much what she wants to say but she allows the viewer to experience it and I feel the mm -hmm. show you created uh, really uh, gives so much space uh, for the audience and I really appreciate that because oh, I feel you. with contemporary exhibitions there's more and more content and text and you mm -hmm. get so tired of reading that you just don't notice the work anymore or you just like too overwhelmed mm -hmm. with all the knowledge mm -hmm. <laughs> and the theory behind the work that you just don't have space to see the work. And I feel uh, in this show, you really give so much space. We're ready for that now in the art world and in museum experience on the one hand. So thank you, Patricia, I agree with that. And I'm happy you recognize that and felt that. Um, but of course, it's really great work that rewards us when we seek to have the experience. And that's a bit unusual, but great. 
maybe a silly question, but I uh, read somewhere that she actually wanted the works to be touched and mm. kind of mm. really bodily experienced. Of course, the yeah. the art world or like this kind of uh, big work doesn't allow us really to do that because we would just mm -hmm. destroy it. Yes, but. Uh, Did you, by the way you created the space, think of like really having the possibility to get as close as possible mm. to the work that it almost gives us the feeling that we yeah. touch it? We, we thought enormously about that. And I say that in the, in the 1960s, there were a number of experiential exhibitions where art came out of the frame. I mean, I remember being a child in New York and going to exhibitions and you would, you know, walk through like, you know, streams of mylar and, you know, optical art things and, you know, things that you could touch, right? You were literally in the exhibition. And, and sometimes contemporary artists do that. So, so she was in a way attached to that possibility when art, again, became specific to a location and, and environmental. Um, and she did, in fact, say, you know, that she wanted people to enter her work, literally. And we find some photos of that. And, um, ah, and we are a bit concerned that we send out the wrong message. And that led, of course, in the beginning of the conversations here at Tate Modern, that we would need to, as with the other shows, barricade the work. And luckily, the museum curators and others recognize that that would protect it but destroy the experience. So we instead have invested in guards, vigilators to be here, security to help guide the visitors and tell them when they have gone too far. Um, but I also hope that in the pacing of the exhibition and in the way the people approach it, that perhaps by the time we get to the mass of works, which you can walk through, but yet are not to touch, that perhaps like, if I could use the example, like in a church, we have slowed you down by the time you've gotten there. And in slowing you down, also conveyed some sense of importance and solemnity that maybe a level of respect takes over and we will not have chaos uh, and that the work will be protected and enjoyed but also experienced in a way that the artist wanted it to be experienced because... Um, We send lots of different messages in exhibitions, and sometimes they are a playground, and sometimes they are meant to be something different, and yet we put up barriers that are barriers to experience as well as a kind of policing. And we've really tried not to do that, and I hope we will succeed. From my experience, I think you definitely succeeded. But the show will only open in two days, and then I guess <laughs> we will <laughs> the see audience will show. Many more people are there, how especially it goes. kids <laughs> and old people. Uh, last but not least, a big part of uh, Magdalena Bakanovich's uh, practice uh, was also 
being an educator and uh, being together with other artists and young people, showing uh, them her ways of working and her ways of seeing the world. As you remember at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned the Abakanovich Arts and Culture Charitable Foundation that was initiated by Abakanovich and her husband. Mary Jane Jacob helped to develop the foundation mainly after the passing of the artist in 2017 and is now the foundation's artistic director. Apart from continuing the legacy of Abakanovich, the foundation also supports young artists and has recently launched a wonderful platform together with Elia called UAX to support Ukrainian artists and Ukrainian art schools who continue or are forced to continue under the traumatic conditions of war. So this is how it all began. I mentioned how I, at your suggestion, met the artist in 1979 and retold that story of seeing her work and then organizing a show that happened in 1982. So, I mean, I was in my 20s and my first she was my first big show, and there's never been a bigger show. That's amazing. Um, with such situations, and I've now worked with hundreds of artists, you know, some stay friends, and we will have at the opening a number of famous artists coming for whom Abakanovich is new to them, um, but they are my friends, and they come in a friendly way to this exhibition. Uh, so so that's a nice part of being a curator, that this is part of your world. With Abakanovich, it was something more, because it was always something more. So we stayed in association over the decades of the rest of her life. Were you also friends? I participated in other ways with her, doing gallery exhibitions, helping with things, answering things. Um, as I say, we met in 79. The show was in 82. In 1990, um, I had a child. I have a son. Um, and Magdalena is the godmother. That answers, I think, my question. <laughs> so we stayed, so we ended up becoming family. Um, and she many times in my home uh, and appreciates building a, a life and a domestic life and, you know, cooking and all these things that uh, in which she sees this sense of making, right? We make a life and we make art. Um, so yes, and by 1999, she had had sufficient success in the West and with galleries that um, she and her husband, with whom I was also very close, Jan Kosmowski, felt that they could now take on another aspect which they both felt somehow born into of responsibility for using their intelligence and their resources to help others. And so they made a restricted foundation that would be money set aside uh, to be used after their lifetime. Never added to and never subtracted, but okay, invested and it grew. <laughs> Um, 
In December of 1999, they invited my husband and I to join them in their uh, holiday spot where they were and after Christmas, and we went for a few days, um, always to work, <laughs> never just to enjoy, but enjoyable work. <laughs> um, and on that occasion, the mission was to conceive of what could this money be used for, what would be the purpose and the structure for it living into perpetuity. Why would they, why were they doing this? They knew, and then how does this become articulated and enacted operationally? And so that was the job that we did to define the foundation, wasn't quite yet with its full name, um, which has purposes twofold. One is to continue the legacy of Abakanovich artistically through scholarship and books and exhibitions and the like, as we have here. And the other, equally important, not to be in any way as stated in the documents, to privilege one over the other, but equally so to live out the values of Abakanovich as she in her own lifetime did and to therefore extend her ideas into the future. That means that art is a subject of inquiry that also can intersect with other fields that oftentimes are defined as separate or, uh, or in no way impactful, such as scientific research. What do artists and scientists have to say to each other, for instance? Um, that also it speaks to the subject of art as a purpose within contemporary society and that to have a dynamic society, we need to have art and to continue to probe that role of art. So these are among the purposes and the foundation itself then took some 20 years of maturation to then be inaugurated after the passing of both the artist and her husband and began to give grants to um, create research libraries, to uh, endow research, to develop programs with communities and with youth, to also um, work with other uh, resources and to enable other artists to do their work. Uh, the war in the Ukraine is, as I think, Many of us feel it everybody's war too, but there is a very particular association and connection in the former Eastern Europe, in Poland and Ukraine between this. You yourself could speak to this perhaps more than I. And, um, and I know that for Magdalena, she often stated that the war did not end for us in 1945. And uh, so this is, this is a common enemy, a common war, a continuing war. Continuing war, yeah. And 
and a threat. So that is one purpose of our current granting to the European League of Institutions of Arts to support art students and create mentorship programs. But the other is, as you said in your introduction, Avakinovich herself was a valued teacher for 35 years in Poznan at the Art Academy, now named for her. And knowing that it is in the next generations that the world lives and must be sustained, and that art students are not irrelevant, um, that the answers are not in a direct relational formula of we need people who can improve computers, for instance, um, but that, in fact, we need creativity, and human creativity is to be valued, and, um, and artists have a role in that. And so it is a very appropriate and unfortunately timely uh, moment to do this, which just happens to coincide uh, with the Tate show. We would have never imagined it six years ago when we began doing this, we thought. We thought the world was solved in some of those dimensions, but here we live it again, and, and she would be um, sadly uh, familiar with all that we see today. Thank you, Mary Jane, for mm -hmm. this uh, yeah, thank you for your uh, fruitful uh, conversation and for sharing so many also of the private stories uh, you had uh, with Magdalena Bakanovic. Everyone, of course, is very much invited to see the show that you curated with two other uh, curators uh, and experience the work of Magdalena Bakanovic. And happily, it will be here until May 21st in London. was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. As announced last time, I also just released the Kitchen Conversations cookbook, an artistic cookbook with recipes from 17 artists who were the first to appear on this podcast. As you know, I collect those recipes and now they made it into a publication that was published by Contemporary Links. Please check out the show notes uh, which will lead you to the book where you can of course buy it and support me. You can also support me, as mentioned at the beginning, through my Patreon account. And for a certain level of supporting, you will also receive the cookbook from me. In general, if you enjoy what I do and enjoy listening to the guests I'm inviting, please share this episode or this podcast with anyone who might be interested. Because at the end of the day, it's all about growing our Eastern European community. Have a wonderful Christmas holiday and we hear each other in the new year.